0: Podcast analytics are definitely the most insurmountable technical problem in the world today. <laughs>
1: it's hard, harder than nuclear energy.
0: <laughs> harder than nuclear There's energy fun. getting rid of plastic. What were the big like, four?
1: <laughs> plastics, ammonia, uh steel, steel and concrete. Yeah, and then podcast analytics.
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's one of those things where like when you set up the infrastructure for something, it kind of is such a limiting variable. Just I'm sure like like Spotify does actually a really good job with podcast analytics, but it's just Spotify. It's not every platform. And there's so many podcast platforms.
2: Or well, they have control of the whole thing. Right. Because we don't get anything around listens from like Apple Podcasts or anywhere else, right? We only get downloads.
0: Yes, exactly. We don't... You know, Apple, podcast Apple has Podcasts has... Good yeah, good but stats. that's... Yeah. But it's specific to Apple. Like we don't have like... Okay.
1: Yeah, it's, it's yeah. siloed there too. Yeah.
0: It's yeah. just siloed. Like everything is siloed. And then there's also a lot of like other... Like there's like a long tail of podcast players, which are, you know, they don't have the types of analytics platforms like Apple and Spotify have. So mm. those don't give you really much of anything. It's like a blessing and a curse. It's great that it's a distributed like RSS feed, which is awesome because then, you know, people can choose where they want to listen. And like, it's very easy to control your own podcast. Can't be censored. Yeah, it's great. It's great from that perspective.
1: Can't be controlled by World Economic Forum.
0: Yeah, (laughs) which is nice. That's nice. I don't like being controlled by the World Economic Forum.
2: (laughs) They are after us. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> we don't really need the listen numbers though, because we know from Spotify that the downloads and listens are exactly the same.
1: <laughs> yeah, a yeah. couple million each episode. Yeah. <laughs> the rest is a rounding error. Couple million of seconds of listening, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. So the, the the two worst problems in tech that will never be solved are podcast analytics and Goodreads.
2: <laughs> no one oh. will
1: ever. That was probably I was most, going to say yes.
2: video calling. Video calling seems oh, the video most in- another one. <laughs> And there's actually money in video calling, which is why I'm amazed it's still unsolved.
1: Not, not anymore. I've seen Zoom stock. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was a flash in the pan.
2: <laughs> Definitely more money than uh, than podcast analytics. Yeah.
1: More more money than one click checkout buttons. <laughs> 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 uh. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't talk to somebody who worked in crypto, but. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, should we talk about motorcycles? I would love to. Yeah. Uh,
1: had
0: either of you guys read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance before?
2: No, this was my first time. I read Okay. First time.
0: I read it in. Yeah. You had read it before, right? Yeah. I'd read it in uh, 2013 right after graduating and somebody recommended it cool. to me. And I, well, one, I'm glad I read it again, because it had been on my like, rereads, like books I've been wanting to reread for a while. But even like in 2013, and I got some different things this time than 2013. But at that time, the thing it really helped me reconcile was I, like I did engineering right in college, and I hated the way it was taught. It was so bad. Like, I can't emphasize that enough how bad and, and CMU is a good school. But like, the way that they taught it was so much a theoretical understanding of everything. And it wasn't until, so I was chemi and basically freshman through junior year, you're just doing theory. And it's not until senior year, you start actually doing like real projects. And I never like, I, I think like I was already so deep in like, I hate this by senior year that I, it almost like, I feel like if we did the hands-on projects earlier, I would have been so much more into it because it's actually really cool. Like even something as simple, it's not, like it's not actually that complicated to do distillation, for example. But if you're just looking at distillation as an equation, it's so boring. But when you're like, oh, you can take like any substance and purify it based on the boiling point of that substance, it's actually, like kind of really amazing to see that in real life. But you don't get to see it till you're a senior. And so this book was just like, and I know it's just one of the ideas of the book, but this like bridging this gap between like theory and, and practice, Mm. it was just like, Oh yeah, I'm not the crazy one thinking that like the way they taught it was crazy.
2: (laughs) You're the romantic chemical engineer.
0: Is that, is that where it would
1: be classified? I guess like the,
2: it was like the classical understanding.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a teaching birds how to fly thing. Right. Yeah. Like, you should you should get in and do the do the science and then understand it after. I, I had the exact same reaction with uh calculus and physics.
0: Oh yeah. That's Where the I was same learning thing. calculus yeah.
1: in <laughs> high school. Mm-hmm. It just seemed so boring and so stupid. And I was like, what the hell would this ever be useful for? And then start taking the more advanced physics classes and realize, <laughs> oh, this is actually cool and useful and fun. Yeah. Like and this is the language on, of honestly, physics.
0: Basically, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. You you, like you don't even need a separate calculus class. Just do a sufficiently detailed physics class, and you'll just learn the calculus on the way. Like at least for me, that worked so much better. I know there are some people who just prefer the. That's what it is.
0: It's like the different learning styles, and I think. Everything is kind of taught for the other learning style than this learning Mm -hmm. style of like hands on and then theory. Because then the theory is actually fun to learn. It's like, why isn't this working? Oh, I'm going to go solve my problem by figuring out why it isn't working.
2: It it becomes this emergent thing. Yep. I I wonder how much of this is also the when you are teaching theory, it's safe and you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have to demonstrably be an expert. But when you Mm -hmm. do something like, I mean, an easy example is public speaking. You have to, there's everything you can say about don't use likes or ums and have a good posture and maybe, you know, so on and so forth. And then you have to just give a speech. And when you give a speech, there's so much more to what makes it sound great than the ums and the pauses and anything that can be prescribed. But it's very easy to teach the theory. I was watching the Cupertino town hall meeting where like Steve Jobs was pitching Apple Park and... I was like YouTubing randomly the other day and it you know just popped up in the feed. He's just such a good speaker. Like he goes on and he like starts by talking about his childhood and it's like it feels like he's only talking to you. And it's very hard to actually distill what makes it so good, but it's so charismatic and it looks effortless at the same time. And you can only yeah. demonstrate it. Like you can't even boil it down to its constituent parts.
1: what i was gonna say is my friend nathan and i have talked about this a lot because we're both really focused on like fiction writing right now yeah and um nathan baugh is a great follow on twitter if you want writing stuff but we we talked about it a lot because he spent a ton of time studying the science of fiction writing and like he said the same thing too where it's like yeah no matter how much of this stuff you study it sort of like doesn't matter until you've written a lot as well like none Mm -hmm. none of it's very useful uh or I, i feel like Neil, I know you and I have talked about this with business books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, where there's there's this temptation in the beginning before you start something to go read a ton of entrepreneurship books and then you, you read a bunch of them and you, you think you're learning all of this stuff but you're actually not learning anything because yeah. there's literally nothing for you to hang that, that theory and those ideas onto. You have to go try the thing first.
0: Same thing with selling. Like, selling's the same way. Yeah, sales. Mm-hmm. I feel like even like software engineering is the same way too. Like, you know, you can learn about loops and recursion and all this stuff, which is useful, dude. but you got to build something. We had
1: to take that CS class at CMU and I hated it. I thought, I thought programming was miserable. (laughs) I thought it sucked. And then literally two months later, I'm at an internship and we're doing all this Excel stuff. And I was like, this is dumb. This can totally be automated. (laughs) And then taught myself VBA to automate all of it. And it was fun, right? It was great. It was like, Oh, this is actually useful for stuff. Nobody told me (laughs)
2: that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you're following it in like the build and break and build and break, as opposed to the exactly. linear order of like a particular way.
0: Totally, totally. I understand why we have school. Like it makes like it makes some sense, but it's like the <laughs> I increasingly
1: don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> aside from aside from government subsidized daycare, I mean, yeah, is, there you like, go. It's useful for the first it's like next number of years of school, <laughs>
0: school but <laughs> um, but I do think like the way things are taught is just like. It, like we've gone so far in the other direction. I did find out that CMU's chemi program used to be a uh, what? What were those things called? Where you're like working and like a work study uh, co op? Co op, yeah. It was a co op hmm. thing yeah. where like because because Pittsburgh is like a huge hub for like large companies in like like PPG is based there. It's one of the largest chemicals companies. It used to be like the world steel hub. So like steel is another thing, which is a very chemi heavy process. So you would be expected to like do, I think, three semesters of co ops while you were part of Kemi. And then they got rid of it like twenty years before we went there and they never brought it back or didn't even have an option to do it. And it's like that would actually be so useful to see how these things totally are being used totally. in real
1: life. I feel like that's when you know you know a field very well, is when you can tell that somebody else is doing that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like another good example of this is when you know a topic pretty well and somebody starts explaining something and you can tell that they just like downloaded a take on it from a podcast. Hmm. Right. Or they, or they read like one book on it and you, you can like kind of tell which book it was they read and are sort of like regurgitating that versus like actually understanding it at a personal level. I don't know if it's a good term for that, that distinction or that switch. Is there? Yeah. Or it's like what synthesis yeah it's
2: hard because nothing's really original so you the most original sounding things are like good synthesis that kind of looks between the lines
1: yeah yeah so it's something like the difference between synthesis and repackaging yeah i don't know there's there's a good there's a good tweet in there somewhere
2: (laughs) The only, the only way to measure the value of an idea (laughs) is
1: can it be packaged into 280 characters? Yeah.
0: It's also (laughs) like sports are a lot like that too. Like you don't, you see a lot of former players not turn into good coaches because they can't necessarily Mm. explain Mm. what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think, I think that's similar here where it's like somebody who's good at sales can't necessarily teach sales potentially. But you just kind of have to, like, there's some things you just have to, like, just do a ton of reps. And, Nat, I'm guessing, like, fiction writing is probably a lot like that, too. It's like, you can't...
1: definitely feels that way so far. Yeah.
2: (laughs) He talks about this in the part of the book where they're constructing a thing. I forget what they're building. And he's like, the technical documents always show you one way to build a thing. But there's actually so many ways to build a thing. And all of them are correct because you end up with the thing at the end. I've been thinking about this... Because I'm doing the Chinese tutoring that I, I told you guys about, and my tutor is just so good. And he has – I forget the name of his philosophy, but it's like this – he uses this circular diagram to show it. And it's cool. this completely nonlinear thing. But what I've noticed is like the progress is slow and then emble- unbelievably fast and bursts as like the different pieces come together. Yeah. So I'm only like – I don't know, four months in now, but, uh, I've made a lot more progress than I expected to in that time. And I think it's largely cool. because these things will like abruptly come together. Uh, and I have no idea how I would outline this class.
1: Uh, I was gonna say, have you ever listened to a Michelle Thomas language tape?
2: No, I've no. never heard of this.
1: I, I had the exact same spirit experience that you're describing a deal using his tapes because it's all like, he doesn't explain any grammar structures or anything like that. He just walks you through like simple to increasingly complex sentences and you're kind of like following along and then he'll ask you some other question out of left field and you'll realize you like somehow know how to say that sentence even though he never yeah. taught you how to do it. And you're like, where the hell did that – it's such a wild experience.
2: It's really cool.
1: I don't know if it's a similar method or anything. It just made me think of that for anybody looking for a similar experience at home.
2: It is. It is. It feels like I uh, know things I didn't realize that I knew.
1: Hmm. Yeah. A cool thing. How would
0: you even describe what this book is about?
2: Dude, I can't believe
1: this book has. I like. I don't. This. I mean, people know. What I mean, I can't believe this book has sold that well.
0: Yeah, because it's you a little know? bit esoteric and a little bit like dense in some parts, for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, the the middle is really kind of a slog on the the detailed philosophical stuff. If you're not somebody who's particularly interested in those things, which I don't think most people are.
2: I have to do a lot of chat GPT and Googling to understand the references and how they connected.
1: Yeah. I felt like I was back in my philosophy undergrad. I was like, Oh, this is like a (laughs) refresher course. It's great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think the name Zen in the title actually probably helped it sell well. Like, I think it's one of those cases too, where like the title.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like an interesting title. this came out in that era, like, uh, the way of Zen came out hmm. around this time to like, it was a big theme. Yeah. Because yeah, then like the, the last section is so good, so good. where he, t- where he ties it all together is fantastic, but you've got to be pretty committed to get, to get there. there. Yeah. I felt at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the narrative helps a lot. Yeah. Like the narrative does pull you along in the beginning, even when the the stuff gets too heavy, because there is that question of like, like okay, is this guy insane? Like, what's going on? What's going to happen with his kid? Right? You you really wonder about that. So that helps, I think, having it in the narrative. Yeah, is what gets because it it has like a story
0: it. element. It's not a philosophy book of just pure like nonfiction. It's like philosophy tied into story, which
1: pulls you along. Yeah.
0: I'm actually reading his sequel to this right now called "Leo." Oh yeah, I
1: was wondering if that was good. Yeah,
0: I'm like a quarter through it. It's a different topic. I mean, it's a related topic, and he references the first book a lot, actually. But the but the, the so far at least the theme that I'm on is like he's again on a journey, like it's it's a boat journey this time. It's like somewhat autobiographical in that like he is divorced from his wife. He references these things that have happened in his past. He is uh, a successful author. You know, it's like he's written one book Mm -hmm. and he's like talking about how some of that plays out and like how he just tries to like isolate himself because he can't think when he's doing like talks and like, you know, talking to people. So he's like on this boat journey to try to get like away from all of that, like not be near a phone. Obviously, there weren't cell phones in this time when he's writing it. The, The one part that's super interesting so far is he says that, The so he's comparing East Coast philosophy with like Midwest and West Coast. And he actually says that like East Coast is very which maybe this isn't that insightful, but it's like East Coast is very like Victorian and like British relative to the Midwest and the West. And like he's like wrestling with like why that is. And he realizes that the Midwest and the West Coast basically have inherited like Native American philosophy more than the East Coast Hmm. has. And he ties a lot of that together. So it's like he's talking about more like Native American philosophy stuff, which is kind of interesting. And he's from Minnesota, which I don't think I even put together from this first book. Mm. But he talks a lot about that in his in the second book.
2: What's an example of?
0: Oh, like something that like the East Coast, he says, more stratified between like poor and uh, and rich. And it's more like you're in like basically says like in the in Minnesota he's like you can be like working a hourly type of job and still have a pretty normal life um, like you you're not you don't view yourself as a second class citizen and then he's talking about there's like a scene where he's like in Manhattan and he's like the people here who are poor have to like literally commute like an hour and a half to get to the city because they can't afford to live in the city that they work in and he's like the sort of like ghettoization of certain classes of people is like not something traditionally that happens outside of like the East coast as much. I would, I would argue like the West coast is also pretty expensive like that. Yeah, I was going to ask
2: what year was written. Cause it may have been true.
0: It was the nine. It was like early nineties, I think. And he's read a lot of the themes he's wrestling with are like actually more modern. I would say in that book than this book, like this book is a lot of like the people being uh, like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, I would say is more about the struggles of like technology and I think by the 90s, that was like baked in hmm. in some level, you know, like the other couple that they're traveling with, who is.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just wouldn't have used that as like my one sentence. Summary no, it's not the one sentence but, summary, but, yeah, yeah. but I'm
0: just relating it to Leela, which is okay. in that one. Well, at least so far, the struggle that he's talking about is more the like income gap, essentially, um, is like a hmm. lot of what he's talking about of just like how like a country that's kind of based on like equality has kind of ended up in the stratified world and he's basically saying it's like east coast philosophy going across the country and and he ties east coast philosophy to like the uk which is very like or the british society which is very class-based and that like that's like become normal at least in like new york was his like he was very anti new york in that book but yeah (laughs) but he's he's sailing on the hudson which is actually pretty interesting it's like a pretty interesting journey just from like a landmarks (laughs) perspective
2: how far up the Hudson? Near you. Near you. <laughs> That's one of my uh, w- uh way the deal on the way. Yeah. <laughs> one, of my, one of my goals for the year. How would you guys summarize this book? Quality. <laughs> yeah.
1: How would I summarize it in a helpful way for other people? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Neil. No offense, Neil. <laughs>
2: I can take a stab at it. This is what I was thinking about right before the call, because I I was really struggling with it. And I I have like a bad answer I can put out there, which is, (laughs) well, I think you guys will immediately see why it's bad. But he struck me as like a very intuitive person across several domains and struggling to put that intuition into words. So like the romantic versus classical is like intuitive learning, Uh, quality and like noticing quality is this appreciation for this intuitive thing that he cannot define. And then even like who he is, he has this like intuitive sense, but even then he's like, I don't really know who I was. He has this like split personality thing. It might be insane. He's trying to like feel what's going on with the sun and actually kind of fails to articulate most of these things for the bulk of the book. And then makes like an attempt at the end. Like that was what I found very relatable about it. At least was the feelings were real, even though they were difficult and to articulate and when he articulated them somewhat unconvincing.
1: Yeah. The, I think the book does a really good job of opening the door on a lot of the problems that are surfaced, pointed out, whatever by like Buddhism and probably like Taoism as well. Right. But to your point of deal, it doesn't do a very good job of like closing that door with any, solutions um i guess if if i were going to describe it it would be about like how to develop a i'm struggling with which word to use here but it's something like better or healthier or more present relationship with the world around you
2: Hmm.
1: right yeah like it's which is kind of zen right that is sort of what zen buddhism is doing too but it's like just cuz the the theme with talking about technology with the other couple talking about learning and education talking about like i mean even the whole thing on writing right where he's helping somebody write an essay and it's like just start with the top left brick of the building and then see where it goes right it's it's really like and you don't have to write the whole to, book maybe it's like learning like right yeah. away yeah, yeah. maybe yeah maybe it's more about it's something about like learning how to zoom in on wherever you are in the world right or learning how to pay attention learning how to you know be in the present moment for lack of a less um trite way to describe it. yeah
0: that. and to just like back up <clears throat> what we were talking about the other couple uh that they were traveling with the like conundrum is he is like a self like a mechanic of his like he's not really a mechanic but he's like taught himself self-learner for fixing and maintaining his own motorcycle and the other couple that yeah. he's they're traveling with is very like, we'll take it to a shop. We'll take it to an expert. Like, we don't know how to deal with this. And then they also don't want to learn. They're not like open to learning about it. They're like yeah. intimidated to your point about the, you know, do the top brick first. It's, it's like the same idea. It's like there's so much to learn that they're almost like intimidated mm-hmm. on like where to even start. And he's like, let's start with something simple and like just learn how to like, clean out this one piece or like diagnose this one problem and then everything kind of like turns into an infinite rabbit hole like you find there's like one thing where he's talking about like you start with one problem and that takes you to like another part of the 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 motorcycle and then another part and then another part all the way into like the actual engine and you're just like learning each step as you go deeper and deeper and deeper but you don't have to start with knowing everything which you can't start with knowing everything
2: I'm learning this with our house right now because our plumbing is quite old. So we're having issues crop up here and there. And we've now had three plumbing issues. And I now have like an 80% complete map of the plumbing behind the walls. But if I had started with the map, it would have been like incomprehensible and useless. But now that I've had to fix three things, I'm figuring out where the problems are. Uh, maybe we should zoom out one more time just because we haven't actually explained what the overall narrative structure is. So there's the trip with him and his son and the other couple. And then there are flashbacks where the narrator is discussing his previous life, where because of some kind of like, what's that therapy called? Electroshock therapy? What is it where it's yeah. like you put the nodes on your forehead? Yep. Basically, yep. he, in his past life, it's in implied he goes insane. And then they treat that insanity and he ends up in his current state with only glimpses of his past life. and And throughout this, they're pausing at different places of their trip. In between the flashbacks, he's fixing the bike and then tying things together, anchored on the idea of like, well, when you fix a bike, you're like learning these things, focusing on quality, understanding technology, present in the moment because you're fixing it, so on. Did you guys think he was insane?
1: Mm, That's a good question. I mean, yeah, because something clearly happened because he talks about it in one of the flashbacks about him like telling his wife to leave and take the kids and him just sitting in the room and for like days or like, something, right? Like for days so, yeah. and kissing himself. Like, he had like a, psychi- like, having a psychotic break or something. Yeah, yeah. Some sort of psychotic break, but yeah, well, like for, for where it ends, right? It, it really, it feels like it ends in this kind of fugue state where you wonder what's going to happen to him and to his son, because the, the implication is that his son has the same psychosis that he does. And that's, where a lot of the son's problems are coming from, right? And I guess it's kind of a spoiler, a little bit, but well, not and, a not a plot spoiler, really. I mean, there isn't really a plot.
0: And his son's but, life is really, I mean, it's really sad. Like, I don't know if you guys saw this in the yeah. biography, like the son or the maybe it was in the afterward, or somewhere. The son was murdered actually oh. at age twenty two, I think.
1: Twenty yeah. two? Yeah,
0: in San Francisco, in like a just I I forget if it was like a robbery gone wrong. It was a like, mugging.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. but I, I read that i think this was in the afterward like he he was leaving the zen center in san francisco and two guys pulled up in a car and tried to mug him but he didn't have anything on him and i guess when he told them that he didn't have anything for them to steal they like got pissed off and stabbed him and drove away so but then the really the really weird thing in that story was that he had sent a letter to his parents like a few days before that, where he said you didn't think he was going to live to see his 23rd oh, birthday. Oh,
0: yeah, 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 I saw that.
1: And that letter got delivered after he died, and he got stabbed, like, a few days or a few weeks or something before his 23rd birthday. Yeah. Really strange. Yeah. Yeah. His, uh, Persig's letter in the afterword about grappling with the death of his son is, like, really touching. Yeah. I-, I thought that was, like, the best writing in the book, but...
2: I actually did not read about his life. I only read the book, so I'm...
1: I, yeah, I found it because I, I looked up, I wanted to know if, I was looking for something, I was looking for something else, like, I can't remember, maybe I was trying to find if there was any more on, if he like ended up back in an asylum or something, but then somebody else had posted the letter online and then I realized it was in the afterword, but it's really good, it's, it's worth reading. Also, this
0: book is like actually pretty autobiographical from what I was able to yeah. find online, like... He actually did teach at that that college, and like, like all that stuff seemed like mm. factual. Like that was like I. Yeah. So I think he he probably actually did have the psychotic break.
2: No, he did. Yeah. So that's on he, he did. It's on his yeah. Wikipedia. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Persig had a mental
2: breakdown and spent time in and out of psychiatric hospitals between 1961 and 1963. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and treated with electroconvulsive therapy on numerous occasions.
0: Yeah, it's it's like, it's interesting because like, like, I don't know. I, there were parts of the book where I thought he was not crazy and like it was the world that was crazy and parts that I was like, oh, the like he is insane. Yeah, yeah like it. Wow, this
1: is. Yeah,
2: I kind of wish I read the Wikipedia earlier, it like reframes the whole book.
1: In what yeah. way? Well, his son, he, he published the book before his son. Died. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that that's helpful to know for the timeline of everything. But yeah, knowing that you did actually have that psychotic break and clearly experienced most of this is yeah.
2: like pretty wild. Neil, the reason I think it reframes, at least my my thinking of it, is I thought a lot of the uh psychotic break part of the book was purely to like increase the intrigue and the narrative uh, and mm. not necessarily tied to the discussion of values and any of the self discovery. So I discounted those parts a little bit in favor of other pieces. But since that's actually like you could basically call this like narrative nonfiction, I guess. I should have like thought of that a bit more prominently as I was reading it.
0: Wow. He supposedly had an IQ of 170. Tested. Yeah, high
2: school diploma at 14. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a guy he mentions in the sequel, which you guys will have to give me a minute to find the name because I like took a note of it who had an IQ in like the 200s and was like, I thought he was like making up this person. And I looked it up and like the guy is like, actually like that was like, it's like, he's like famous, but we've like lost the name. It was like from the like mid 1900s, I want to say. And the guy also like, even though he graduated from like college at age 14 or something, and initially did some like public facing type of work, he eventually just became a recluse. And like, wrote these books that no one ever really found until he died. And yeah, it was just like I I haven't like that's the part I've just gotten to where he's like starting to talk about this person. But I'm like, damn, these people like he's kind of using it to show like people who are of like that level of intelligence sense something wrong with how our world is set up because that's what that guy's writing was about. And yeah, I'm just getting to that. So I don't know where that that storyline like leads, but it's just like wild that people like that even exist. Like, I can't even imagine a 200-plus IQ person.
1: Isn't the guy with the highest IQ in the world right now, like, a bouncer? What? Or something? Have you guys heard this story? No. No. Uh, Oh, I found the guy's name,
0: by the way. William James Sidis. Okay, he was born in 1898, died in 1944. Yeah, well, he wrote this book, which is, this is, like, the thing that kind of, like, is fascinating about him and this is the context in which he's talking about him in in Leela, is uh, the books called the animate and the inanimate published in 1925, but written in 1920 in which he speculated about the origin of life in the context of thermodynamics in like the 19 in 1920, he's speculating Hmm. on this and it ended up becoming like a mainstream scientific theory, like 80 years later, but that's not his background. He just like, Self-studied it and was like, "Oh yeah, this is, makes sense." I'm gonna write a book about this. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> okay the the smartest the smartest guy bouncer story is this guy Christopher Langen. His IQ is estimated between 195 and 210, and in 1999, wow. he was described as maybe the smartest man in America or the world, but he. Oh, yeah, he was mentioned in the book Outliers. Oh, wow. He was like, he was Gladwell's example of why a high IQ doesn't necessarily help you in life. (laughs) Savage. Um, Yeah, he's, he's mostly worked as like a bouncer uh, for a lot of his life, but he has this like crazy theory, cognitive theoretic model of the universe which he says explains the connection between mind and reality, the presence of cognition and universe in the same phrase. A theory of everything. He can prove the existence of God, the soul, and an afterlife using mathematics. But he's also he a big part of the 9-11 truther movement. Truth so.
2: her, yeah. Who knows? It must just be like when you have an IQ like this, your mind just operates in this totally other way.
0: Or this totally yeah. other world.
2: Yeah, man, I'm so impressed by Robert Persig, though, now that I know that this was like fairly nonfiction to be able to write a book this good. And yeah, distill the ideas. I mean, I I don't think he gets to the answer of it, but I don't think that was the point. Sounds like he never got to the answer himself. And this was just like, hey, take you along the journey that I've been on.
0: Yeah. Speaking of journey too, like the motorcycle journey that they were on sounds actually like so interesting. (laughs)
1: <laughs> to be able, Yeah, to it, it sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> was it giving you uh, flashbacks to your journey as a deal?
2: Yeah, I was going to say, it is a lot of fun. My one rule is to not ride in the U.S. just because cars are very big mm. and highway speeds are very high. But the twice I've ridden, which was in Chile and Vietnam, both times we like didn't book hotels or Airbnb. Well, actually, in Vietnam, we did book a little bit. But in Chile, we really just went by the seat of our pants. It was like in midday, we would book the Airbnb for the night to see how far mm. we could go. And kind of made decisions on a day-by-day basis. Um, and there is a I, – I had this thought before reading the book, but it came to mind quite a bit while reading the book. When you're riding a bike – I mean he talks a lot about the focus during motorcycle maintenance. Uh, but when you ride, there's this whole other – it's like this full-body meditation because each hand and each foot has a task when it comes to the operation of the bike. And then you have to be completely concentrated on the road because any small issue with the road uh, can be very dangerous. Um, so it's actually like an extremely deep meditation and there's no music. There's, there's really, you can't be afforded to be distracted by anything. And your faculties yeah. are at this, like they're being used at this like 80% level, which is, I mean, it feels like a state of flow. I'm, I guess I'm just without belaboring the point it it's like a full body state of flow.
0: Yeah. Cool. I actually think he would agree with you about that. Cause if you think about the roads that he took, he didn't really take like, I don't even know if interstate highways were like as big as they are now, but it sounds like he purposely would take like back road, like less trafficked roads in general. um, Any chance he got. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, he was talking at one point about getting tailgated. (laughs) I was like,
1: actually
2: he was like, Oh, I was going 75. And then I pushed up to 95 (laughs) and uh, yeah, that feels very fast when you're on a bike. I've never gone that fast. I've only gone that fast in kilometers per hour. (laughs) (laughs)
0: so one thing we like glossed over which i think is a pretty central point in the book is uh this idea of quality which like is hard to describe but where at least like there's like different ways to describe it one one way i would describe it is like it's something that gets it's like something that get that happens in your work when you truly care about it and put all of your like you're basically applying all of your senses to what you're doing in the moment And I think it's like, I I don't know. I actually think he struggled to describe it the whole time, which makes sense because he's like trying not to define what quality is. Yeah. Which is like, I think a good, interesting corollary thing to bring up because it's like when something gets codified as quality and becomes like a convention or a rule, then it becomes, then that's when you lose the quality aspect of it because it was like created in this, in a certain environment, which might not apply anymore in the future, but you're still applying the same rule to it. I don't
1: know. I, I'm, yeah, I'm he's doing, not guy, doing a good
0: job describing it, but it's like, it's a very hard thing to describe.
1: Yeah, I, I highlighted some stuff that I think does the best job of explaining it in the book, where he, so he, he starts this section by saying that we have artists with no scientific knowledge and scientists with no artistic knowledge, and both with no spiritual sense of gravity at all. And the result is not just bad, it is ghastly. The time for real unification of art and technology is really long overdue. And the example that comes to mind when I read that is architecture, where Mm -hmm. it's become this highly optimized scientific process, but it's lost all of the beauty that used to make houses and buildings and stuff so magical, right? Like that, that art is gone. And then you've got, Oh, okay. So I'll I'll stick with that example for now. So then he goes on to say like, how do you reunite like the spiritual and the scientific and like the big thing he keeps coming back to is he opens it with peace of mind. He says, "Peace of mind is a prerequisite for a perception of quality, uh, but it's really about being at one with whatever you're doing. So it involves unself consciousness, which produces a complete identification with one's circumstances. And there are levels and levels of this identification, and levels and levels of quietness, quite as profound and difficult of attainment as the more familiar levels of activity." talks about there's like mental quietness, value quietness, physical quietness, and then I think he ties it together by referencing sitting meditation. So he says, Zen Buddhists talk about just sitting, a meditative practice in which the idea of a duality of self and object does not dominate one's consciousness. What I'm talking about here in motorcycle maintenance is just fixing in which the idea of a duality of self and object doesn't dominate one's consciousness. So, and that, that I think is such a great test. It's like, you know, you are channeling quality if you no longer feel separated from the work. And that requires this kind of like unconscious competence that we've hinted at a few times already. Right? Like if you, if you need to be checking the instructions while you're doing it, like you're not doing quality Or if you're like, following a formula and implementing it, you're not doing quality because, you know, you either don't fully understand it, so you can't be artistic or you're being too scientific, so you can't be artistic. Or if you're just doing whatever, but not actually fixing the bike, then you're being too artistic. But if you can just completely lose yourself in it, And have a fixed motorcycle at the end, like that is like the quality exactly. Yeah, I
0: think on like a related thing, something you said about duality sparked the thought of like it's also when you get out of the binaries and the classifications is another sign that you're like channeling quality or that you're in that 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 quality zone. Yeah, because yeah, because it's like what he talks about it actually in the next book too, where he's talking about how like they classify mammals and like reptiles and how that came about and then he's like they found the platypus and they were like this and then <laughs> yeah. they basically like the reaction to that in europe was this has to be fake because it doesn't fit into the categories that we that are man-made categories
2: you know like yeah. and so
0: his point was like that is, like nature is never the thing that's wrong it's you it's the man-made classifications that are like off
2: I had this exchange with Siri the other day. It was snowing outside and I asked Siri when it would end and it said, it's not snowing. <laughs> it reminds me of the this thing. I was like, well, I'm not going to get an answer from you then. <laughs> well, that is actually an interesting point about
0: technology, right? Because like, I think the way that if you think about how like code works, it requires classification yes. and buckets to be created, yeah. which leads to more of this like, binary type of thinking not binary is not the right word but like thinking based on rules and boxes it's as like deterministic to yeah, yeah deterministic that's the right word
2: yeah. yeah yeah it did make me realize though that i i don't know how to define quality
0: yeah well i think he purposely didn't really define it in the
1: book i i think he no he did but i think he was embarrassed not embarrassed is the wrong word i think he didn't want to say it too explicitly which is it's the tap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Taoism figured this out thousands of years ago, and he didn't like it. I I don't think it was like this extreme, but I think at some point he realized like, oh, this is basically like what Taoism has been saying. And but he doesn't like say that quite outright because I feel like I, I feel like that would almost be like a dissatisfying answer to like get all the way to get that far in the book and then be like actually like you just need to go read the Tao Te Ching like a thousand times and hope that it makes sense to you. Right. But I think that is the answer that he gets that he actually gets at at the end. Right. Or, or it's some, it's some degree of cultivating like non-dualism, right. Which is, you know, core part of Buddhism, Taoism, like that, that seems to be, well, although I guess you could also take the stance that like, I don't know, this feels a little too scientific to me, but cultivating flow is also helping you arrive at quality, but I think flow is maybe just a cheaper version of developing non-duality.
2: Well, he basically says there's either method or function, right? So flow would probably be the method at which you arrive at quality, but quality is outside of method and outside of... That's a good point, yeah. It wasn't method and function. What was the second Flow is a means. Yeah, flow is a means. Yeah. Do you guys remember the other side of the dichotomy, method or – I think it was method or substance, not function? That sounds right. Yeah. But yeah, quality being outside of that duality as well. Now, what did you think, having been the one of the three of us who actually properly studied philosophy in an academic setting, what did you think of the exchanges that he sets in the University of Chicago about Plato and Aristotle yeah. and uh, rhetoric? Like what what was your takeaway from that whole thing?
1: I mean, the the first issue is that I never read any of Aristotle's rhetoric,
2: okay. uh,
1: so <laughs> like I, I didn't I didn't have much of an opinion on that part of it. it. It did it did remind me of like stuff that we talked about in school. I yeah, you know, it was ten years ago, so like a lot of those that's gone. But honestly, my I, I think he in some ways commits the same error that he's criticizing schools of where. Instead of enticing you with what you're going to get to do, like doing the chemistry experiment and then backing into the theory, he starts with all of this theory kind of out of nowhere. Mm. And you don't realize until the end that he's backing into some of the ideas that he talked about at the very beginning with technology and stuff. Like, I don't think that he made the payoff of why he was explaining those things sufficiently clear going into them. Because there, there is a lot of talk about, like, yeah, the, there's the rhetoric stuff. There's, you know, Kant and Hume and like a priori versus posteriori knowledge and all this stuff. And like it, it, that, that's all great intro to philosophy stuff. But it's really not clear why it's important. Like when he's talking about it, and I mean, and that was the same problem I had with a lot of it when I was studying in in school too, right? It's like okay, yeah, Hume says that you can never assume that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, but, like, it is, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, why why is this exercise useful? <laughs> or, you know, there, there's all these, like, epistemology arguments about, like, what what is knowledge? How can you say that you know something? And it's like, I don't know, just, like, I fucking know it, okay? <laughs> like, it, it doesn't matter if we can't come up with a definition. <laughs> like, so I, I was having a little bit of, of those flashbacks with some of it.
2: The th- I'm trying to think about at the beginning. When does he start tying maintenance more concretely into the theory? Right, because you were saying the theory comes first and the practice later, and there was maintenance from the get go, but it was kind of disembodied from the theory for a while.
1: Yeah, because he he's almost too. Like it, it, it is the theory. You can like if you know some Zen Buddhism, you can tell that he's talking about Zen, mm-hmm. but he doesn't like make it very clear. At least I, I didn't, I don't remember reading it very clear that like, it it almost needs like a, it needs like an inception style of story where you're like, you know, you're starting on this level, right? And then, so you're you're getting some of the end because you're like, you're at the same level and then you go down into the pit to get to the deepest parts of like Aristotle Hume and whatever, and then you back it back out. Whereas it felt kind of like, I don't know, you're like starting down here and then you're going way deeper. But like there is a payoff up here. It's just not as obvious starting out. I don't know if that's a good explanation or not. That's why I was sort of surprised that so many people got through it and recommended it because it it felt like Mm -hmm. a lot of like cognitive work to get through.
2: I mean, Um, on Goodreads, it has a 3.8 out of a quarter million ratings. So it sounds like a lot of people did get through it and... Left reviews. <laughs> yeah.
1: I guess 3.8 3. is not terrible. It's not terrible. So it's not I think, terrible. But, yeah.
2: But if, I, if you were asking me what I thought the rating would be based on how it's discussed, I would have probably put it above, like, above a four at least. Yeah. It's interesting. The, you start with extreme theory on one side, and then you have uh, the motorcycle maintenance that's very divorced from it. And it actually matches the narrative form because Phaedrus, like his past self, and his current self haven't reconciled yet. So the theory yeah. and the practice actually reconcile at the same point. I mean, it, it runs parallel with the narrative of when he reconciles with Phaedrus at the end of the book.
1: I mean, I think another way to think of this book is it doesn't need to give you an answer at the end. Yeah. yeah. Like part of the point of the book is to just enjoy the journey
0: mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and to just like <laughs> keep tuning up the motorcycle, keep riding, keep going somewhere. And like, you went somewhere as you were reading this, but you didn't necessarily arrive anywhere and that's okay too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean the Chris wanting to go yeah, home almost, and being unhappy. I almost wish
1: he didn't end with that. Like it, 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 in that theme of this just being a journey that you're like popping in for. It would have almost been better if they had just, like, kept kept riding. Yeah, like, they were just, like,
0: it just stopped at one point. Like, well, Mm -hmm. your view on it stopped, but the journey didn't
1: stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it almost needs a, uh, it needs a GEB-style ending, which is all I'll say on the matter (laughs) and not spoil it for anyone. (laughs)
2: Having not read it, you'll have to tell me after we record what the ending. is <laughs> Oh
1: uh, god, you just you just got to read it. It's literally the best ending of any nonfiction book I've read. Wow,
2: is it worth the thousand pages I have to read to get to the end?
1: It's only like five hundred pages. Oh. You can you can skip a good chunk of the middle. Okay. There, there's a few chapters that are like in-depth logic, hmm. like formulas and whatnot that you like. You can just read the stories that go with okay. them. You don't need to read the actual math. Oh, I want to reread
2: that book. It's so good. We've never done an episode which is a, a, reread a reread of a book.
1: A revisit? Yeah.
2: We should, because I haven't read G.E.B. If we do an episode on it, then I definitely... Dude, we, sh- we, should do,
1: we should do revisits of our favorites so that Adil can do them with us. <laughs> we can do G.E.B. We can do Infinite Jest.
2: Dude, Infinite oh, Jest, be I'd so be so
1: fun.
0: down to do again. I'd be very oh, I've God. only read it that one time it's, but I really want to read it again.
1: Yeah. I actually feel like it'll be better the second time around. It's incredible. It's like I I did not enjoy it that much the first time. Like I enjoyed parts of it. And the second time, I just loved it so much.
0: Because I guess you're not wondering what happens in the story. Like you're not able, you don't need to focus on that.
1: You don't need the reading guide anymore. That's a big improvement. Mm. Yeah, you're not wondering what the payoff is going to be at the end anymore. You like, you have some backstory for the characters in your head. You understand how the dates work. Like a lot of the work is gone and you can kind of just enjoy it. There isn't that much, like, eh, I guess, actually, I think we could have a better discussion about it if we reread it. So I have a lot more respect for that book now than I did the first time we read it.
0: We got to plan that one like two months out though. Cause the deal is, be I know, yeah, that's we're a, all going to need a lot of time. It's a project. Yeah, I'm going to need re- it twice.
2: I, yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. The
0: reading guide does really help. Yeah. We did a reading We bought a reading yeah. guide in addition to the book when we first did it, and that I don't think we could have done the episode without the reading guide. Hmm.
1: It's also like hilarious because the reading guide itself is three hundred yeah. pages or something <laughs> <laughs> also it's the five hundred thousand word book also the footnotes adding another... <laughs>
0: the number of yeah. footnotes in this book is like, like over a thousand footnotes. Yeah, but the footnotes are, like, essential. It's not even, like, footnotes you're like, oh, if I'm not interested, no, I don't have to No, they're read not them. optional.
1: Yeah. You have to read, you them. Have to read yeah, them. You have yeah. to read them. Yeah. He had they, something they to say. points in them. Yeah.
2: He had something to say.
0: Well, another thing about Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is there are, like, unexpectedly funny dialogues that happen. Yeah. Uh, like, when, I forget that professor's name, but, like, that professor they stayed with, the, like, friend.
2: Oh, um, yeah. the Howies or something? dewey's dewey's Dewey's, Dewey's. Dewey's. yeah
0: yeah yeah it's like some of their interactions were hilarious
2: yeah the
1: he's like a good writer he's a good storyteller yeah especially considering it's like a it's it's an interesting narrative considering how like objectively boring the events are right yeah
0: like not much happens from an event standpoint yeah yeah Mm -hmm.
1: it's fairly low stakes tension for most of the like narrative but it it carries you through really well.
0: Yeah. I did think one like one of my criticisms of the book which rereading it, I don't think I even remembered this from the first time. I don't even paid didn't pay much attention to it, but this time I I thought like they made Chris like a little bit flat or he made Chris <laughs> a little flat. Like I like I kind of want to know more of what's going on in Chris's mind during this. Yeah. You know, like like they, they showed it's, like it's events. They showed events of him like having these moods and like running off yeah. and like all this stuff, but like and and maybe that's because like his perspective, he has no idea what's going on in Chris's head and like yeah. that's really what it is. But as the reader, it makes you wonder like like I I wonder what Chris is thinking of all these events and like everything that's happened yeah. in his
2: like, short I, life. But the book is him processing For sure. all of this, yep. including his relationship with Chris. Yeah. So I think it's Meant to be a mystery. I,
1: oh, I was gonna say that was sort of a broader theme that I noticed is that the other characters are kind of flat and like yeah. decently negative. <laughs> like I felt bad for the other friends yeah. who were on the first <laughs> part of the trip because they're they're basically just there for Persig like, to shit on them. <laughs> yeah. No, I uh, like
0: one of the criticisms. He, I think he didn't
1: I read about he this. He didn't book. think anybody was gonna read this book. Like he he thought it was gonna be like some tiny little like <laughs> niche thing and then it's like millions of copies sold. <laughs> and I'm sure the friends are like what the fuck dude? Yeah. <laughs> Did he at least change oh, their thing- names? I hope so. I think so. I hope so. Okay. I hope so. Well, cuz Chris Man. goes by Chris, right? yeah. So. Yeah, Chris is yeah.
0: <laughs> well, uh, one of the criticisms I read of this book was that it it is narcissistic. Uh in that exact mm. exactly what you said actually was the criticism I would read in one of the reviews was like this book is very clearly about him and like everyone else is like a prop.
2: (laughs) Hey, he wrote the book, man. He gets to write it the way he wants. Yeah.
1: Yeah, They can write their own book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Zen and the art of paying someone to maintain your motorcycle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can make the argument that maintains your Zen in a way. Like, uh, (laughs) Just don't worry about it.
1: Yeah. just sit in the waiting room and meditate. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I liked the scene where they're at the diner and Chris wants to write the letter home and he can't figure out where to begin. Similar mm-hmm. to the start with a brick. This time he was like, yeah. don't worry about the narrative. Just write down everything you want to say. Yeah.
1: It's good advice for drafting.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That is true. Cause it's like, it, it is hard to get started on any project. Uh, mm-hmm that you're working on like when you think of the whole scope of the project you're just like it's just so overwhelming yeah it's better to just start with that one thing and then everything flows from that
2: i have started to realize this as i like in any conversation around a more difficult topic or like a very big topic is similar to the chris writing the letter not knowing what the narrative structure is i'll like freeze up and the unfreeze has usually just been Like, I don't know how to summarize my thoughts. So I'll just start by listing out the things I know for sure. Mm. Yeah. And it helps unblock because then the the summary becomes like an emergent thing. It's
1: like my favorite line about writing. I can never remember who it's from, but like writing, writing is like driving in the fog. Like you can't, Mm. you can't see exactly where you're going, but if you have your headlights on, you you know, where you're going next at least something like it's a, there's a better way of, it's much more eloquent than that, but
2: good metaphor though you
1: only see a few feet ahead of you yeah
0: when you're now when you're writing fiction do you Mm -hmm. sometimes not know like where a character is going like you you don't know where a character is going when you start with it and like that character kind of evolves or is it more of like a top-down thing where you're like okay this character is going to start here and end here and i have to build the path for them to get
1: there i tried I tried doing the first version you're describing, which is like discovery writing, where you just have like the Stephen King's thing, where you've got a character or a couple characters in a situation and you just start writing and see where it goes. I tried that and I ended up just like going in circles and didn't really know what it was. I had some idea of where it was going, but it felt like it was just not going anywhere. So I scrapped that after 20,000 words and then started a new one where I actually did like a super detailed outline in notion and, I, what I decided was, I was like, okay, if a scene is like about 2000 words, then I should probably come up with like 30 or 40 scenes, like front load them. Hmm. And then, so like primarily come up with the scenes that are in act one, and then like know how it's going to end. And if I don't have all the scenes in the middle, like I'll figure those out as I go. And that's what I did for this draft that I'm working on. And that's worked incredibly well, because like for the first... Thirty thousand words i could just follow the detailed outline i didn't have to think like at all about what was happening next and as i was doing that the rest of the book kind of like revealed itself and i like wrote down notes of where it was going to go next and i'll probably be done with the first draft next week and i already know what else needs to be like added back into earlier stuff to like fit where i now know it goes so that that's worked the best for me of like a certain amount of detail to start and then discover more as you go and then like go back and clean up, which is also roughly how I did Crypto Confidential. That was a little bit easier because I had real events to go off of.
2: Mm-hmm. Nat, has, has, has that process you just described, when you look at the fiction books and fiction authors you used to like, have, has your opinion changed on any of them? Like do you have more or less interest or respect? Mm, that's a good question.
1: Well, it's tough because you don't like you don't know their process, but there are certain things that I have a lot more respect for, like, like being able to thread good foreshadowing in the beginning that makes sense hmm. is like, it, and I mean, you can do that in either method, because you can obviously go back and add things, but you can sometimes tell that the author got to the end and like had some idea of how they wanted to end it, but it like didn't quite work. And then they were sort of like, oh, okay, like, we're gonna do it anyway. I'm thinking of one novel in particular. I'll mention it to you guys afterwards. Uh, It was a sci-fi novel that like objectively good, but the ending is like much criticized because it sort of like undermines the, it's, it's trying to be a hard sci-fi novel, you know, like accurate science. And it mostly is until the like climax in the ending. And then it's kind of like, "Mm, you like didn't quite thread this needle. (laughs) So there's that, but then like, like three body problem right i'm i'm rereading it now because like the the thing that the thing that i'm much more cognizant of now is like what different writers are good at so like to give you another example there's a series of books called the murderbot diaries by martha wells and if you just want like fun action sci-fi they're great they're like 50,000 words you can read them in one or two settings they're not complicated they're like they're like jack bauer like 24 if you guys ever watched that yeah. show it's like that type of you know action it's just constant just constant non-stop like something's always happening very little description very little interiority right and i'm like decent at that but i'm not very good at the like slower more detailed like really descriptive settings and all of that and so i'm trying to get better at like that side of it so i've been reading some fast-paced sci-fi and now i'm trying to like go read much slower paced stuff to get better at the like world building imagery all of that side of it and Chicks and Liu does a really good job of that in three body problem you know it's very like floral very world building yeah like you yeah. really get a very world building you, you really feel like you're in the settings and sometimes he does it too much right like i'm, I'm rereading the beginning and there are parts where he's describing like the, some of the riots and the the logging camp and whatnot. And I'm like, okay, like I get it. I can, (laughs) right. And so that's really helpful too, because, and obviously that's like all personal preference thing, but like that, that's super useful. So it's, it's not like that I respect or disrespect. It's more like identifying what different authors are good at and trying to like read those so that I can get better at those things too.
2: What was going through my head as you're describing this was for the Harry Potter series, it always felt mm. to me around like book 5 when they introduced the idea of the horcruxes that it got shoehorned in.
1: Oh. I okay, I disagree because I feel like the the horcruxes like she had to have known something like that from the beginning with the scar and with mm. the parcel tong and all of that like I agree that a lot of stuff in Harry Potter definitely feels shoehorned in, right? Like the Time Turner was a whole mess. I I just rewatched all of them. Um,
0: I just (laughs) rewatched all of them. And she actually says that though, the Time Turner was a mistake. She's like publicly said that, like that it doesn't make sense.
2: It would have been so great to have that after the third book. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah right it just conveniently destroyed all of them in the fifth book they all happen to be in the same location yeah. at the same time
0: it's nobody like, kept one um, nobody kept one it's yeah, like nobody kept it's one. like the nuclear exactly. like, like uh nuclear weapon arguably yeah, right? the
1: most powerful object in the universe yeah. <laughs> it's just like all in the ministry it's fine um, <laughs>
2: hermione had it to go to class I, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's just, oh my god um, but like i think she she must have had horcruxes and snape i think yeah. those two she must have well okay so no no, no so those was, payoffs were I thought so those payoffs snape were great. snape
0: she definitely snape, knew yeah. ahead of time um uh, have you guys watched the reunion thing on hbo so they did like yeah. a 20-year reunion after of the first movie and they oh. give all this like behind the scenes stuff and apparently alan rickman who played snape knew the ending like snape's ending before he was the only person who knew the ending as far as we know, besides uh, her. Wow. And the reason for that is like, he said, I need to know how my character ends to be able to like play it the way that it's going to make sense at the end. And she told him, but nobody else knew on set. So, so she, and they, the books weren't all out when they started the first movie. So like, Yeah. yeah, I think the Snape thing was planned from, from the beginning for sure. But the reunion is very well worth watching. I just watched it like over the the holidays and like it's like an hour, maybe maybe like a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like a couple things that stood out, like the first movie CGI was not super well developed yet. So they actually used rail stuff for a lot of things, which like today would be totally CGI. Like here's a couple examples. The Great Hall, like where they have like the banquets and stuff the first movie, they used thousands of rail candles hung from the ceiling for so cool. for the Great Hall, which, like, would never be done today, right? It's yeah. like, think about how expensive and dangerous that is relative to, like, <laughs> what you get from that setting. So that would never happen today. Another thing was the second movie, you know, with... um, Damn, what was the Phoenix's name? Fox. Fox, yeah. So that was an animatronic like bird thing that they built it was not cgi'd it they like Mm. built a like a machine bird for that scene like that was not a cgi thing which is again like kind of wild they wouldn't do that today for sure but it's really fun just to watch it's like an hour ish and you get to you get to see a bunch of like cool behind the scenes stuff
2: i haven't watched the chamber of secrets probably since i was whatever age i was when it came out but the basilisk was so scary to me as a child. And I fear if yeah. I saw it now, it would just look like a toy.
0: <laughs> Yo, you know what is still scary that does live up is Aragog and like all those spiders. Hmm. They actually did oh, a yeah. damn good job with those. Like rewatching it, I was like, damn, this well, is still super creepy.
1: <laughs> I've heard somebody say that about Lord of the Rings too. Hmm. Part of the reason the original Lord of the Rings trilogy holds up is that they mostly did practical effects they didn't do CGI. So like Helm's Deep still looks good because they actually had like hundreds of actors in uruk costumes. And the the extent of the CGI was they like copy pasted them to make it look like there were 10,000. But it was all like real people. So it still looks good. Whereas you can watch a movie that's like five or 10 years newer, but isn't new enough to have the new CGI. And it just looks like shit. Yep. It doesn't look good anymore.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. Whatever that trap is, the uh, yeah,
1: called. Uh, um, Uncanny Valley. Yes, sort
0: of. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're like, you know, it's
1: not good enough. <laughs> I, I sent you the the little bit of foreshadowing I caught on my reread of Three Body Problem in the first book. That it made me so happy when I found it. I'm not going to say it out loud because like, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Yeah, you know,
0: uh, Sheena actually skipped our Three Body Problem episode. She's almost caught up with all the episodes, but she skipped the Three Body Problem one and is reading it right now. So I've read like yeah. I've read some stuff over her shoulder again from the first book, and I it's making me realize the first book was not that engaging. Like I like can't wait till she gets further yeah. in the story. I'm like this is gonna get so much better, like than where you. And even though I she's know. like she's liking it, I, but I was like this is so
1: like it got so the, much. The first better book is objectively around. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the pace of the state yep. completely changed.
2: Yeah, yeah. I really wonder how he must have whiteboarded that narrative because like lord of the rings is go to mordor destroy the ring and then you kind of fill in the blanks
1: <laughs> three yeah. body uh. it's interesting too because there's not at least as i understand it i don't know of any like individual specific like set of theory mm-hmm. or theories that influence three body problem like a lot of those you know like michael crichton right all of his sci-fi books there was like one new technological advance and he was like oh what if this happened with it right mm-hmm. and that's where, like a lot of the nearer term sci-fi comes from but like three body problem isn't like foundation or mm-hmm. leviathan wakes where it's it just starts far future you know it like it starts today and then gets there like it, it's really unique in that sense It's kind of cool
0: yeah one more thing from zen and uh in the art of motorcycle maintenance oh, that yeah. i
1: <laughs> the book that we're talking about yeah
0: no i just was looking at my notes and i realized we didn't talk about this but i think it's a fun one uh to riff on a little bit is the gumption traps mm-hmm. i thought that oh, was yeah. so I a bunch of those highlighted too. yeah so he defines well yeah so this like, is
1: like a very useful part of the book. exactly it was
0: actually like very yeah. practical like so gumption he describes yeah. gumption as basically enthusiasm and that there's certain traps which will make you not be enthusiastic about solving the problem or working on what you're working on anymore and he was basically saying your entire job when doing one of these tasks is just avoid falling into a gumption trap
1: and you'll be fine if you have gumption well And we we should explain why it matters, right? Because his point is that I I like it because it describes exactly what happens to someone who connects with quality. He gets Mm -hmm. filled with gumption. The Greeks called it enthusiasmos. I'm probably mispronouncing that. The root of enthusiasm, which literally means filled with theos or God or quality, right? That's such a great description, right? Like If you're enthusiastic, you are filled with God. You are filled with quality. And that is when you have gumption so then yeah sorry you know like that's why you want to maintain gumption and keep it up because you're infused with quality
0: exactly and that's like when everybody's kind of hit that state i'm sure i'm sure everybody's hit that at some point you're doing something and you're just like so into it so enthusiastic and like something can happen that makes you no longer enthusiastic about it and that like i've had that experience when writing i've had that experience with programming where you run into something that you a like one of the gumption traps is uh it hits your ego and you're just like i am not good enough to do this or like i am inferior to solve this problem and like that's a trap because then you are obviously going to lose all your gumption instantly and there's like a whole number there's a bunch that he lists out which we can i don't know if we want to go into all of them but like that's one that that was almost like the ego version of of gumption which is i think just like a huge one that uh i've seen with especially with like more difficult technical things or things that you're like, I'm not an expert in this. Like, I, I don't know how to do... Especially if you're self-teaching yourself something. Like, if you're like self-taught programming or something, it's so easy to fall into that trap. It's like, this is why people go to school for this and why I can't do this.
1: <laughs> I, I love the way he puts it when he's introducing it. Where he says that a person filled with gumption doesn't sit around dissipating and stewing about things. He's at mm-hmm. the front of the train of his own awareness watching to see what's up the track and meeting it when it comes. That's gumption. The gumption filling process occurs when one is quiet long enough to see and hear and feel the real universe, not just one's own stale opinions about it. If you haven't got it, there's no way the motorcycle can possibly be fixed. But if you have got it and know how to keep it, there's absolutely no way in this whole world that motorcycle can keep from getting fixed. It's bound to happen. It's good! uh, yes, (laughs) let's go.
2: (laughs) You almost need to turn out a bit. Like I like the visual of the front of the train.
1: Front of the train. Yeah, just going. But yeah, to your point, Neil, it's like the the self-taught whatever example is perfect. Like if you're excited, if you have the enthusiasm and you're making progress, like literally Mm -hmm. nothing can stop you. You'll just keep going. (laughs) But then if you hit one of those walls, you're just suddenly off the track and it's over.
0: Yeah. And there's a number of the different walls. Like I like, we don't have to go, there's a lot of them, so we don't have to go into all of them. But like in relation to fixing a motorcycle, he mentioned like, if you don't have the right tools, you might think something is impossible. You might not even know a certain tool exists to solve a certain problem. But as soon as you find out about that tool, you're like, Oh, okay. This actually isn't that hard. But if you're self-taught, but if you're self-taught, you might not even know that that tool exists. Or he even brings up a couple other examples of like lighting and, uh, what were some of the other ones? Like if you don't have a, like he was saying, I always keep a stool near me when I'm oh, working, yeah,
2: keeping your energy. up. Your, yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Like these little yeah. things, but they, like they seem little, but you can lose your gumption by not having those right environment things either.
2: How do you guys find, I find there's the one he talks about anxiety, um, which I'll read real quick. Anxiety. The next gumption trap is sort of the opposite of ego You're so sure you'll do everything wrong, you're afraid to do anything at all. Mm. Often this, rather than laziness, is the reason you find it hard to get started. You jump to wild conclusions and build all kinds of errors into the machine because of your nervousness. These errors, when made, tend to confirm your original underestimation of yourself, creating a positive uh, feedback loop. That was the one that stood out most to me as like, what I've been fighting with the last year. Cause it feels like my decisions have become higher stakes. So I've had to like, think a lot more about mm-hmm. them rather than like stand at the front of the train and YOLO it like where to live, things of that nature. Uh, I'm curious if you guys have felt that and what you guys have done about it. Cause it's very hard. You don't want to not think about these things, but then if you overthink about yeah. it, then you end up doing nothing at all. And there was a point m- like middle of last year where I basically was like, fuck it. Like the worst thing that can happen is I will undo this.
0: Right. It's not like an irreversible decision. Yeah.
2: Yeah, But I don't know if that's like a healthy way to do it. It was just the way I did it that unblocked me eventually.
0: Yeah. But if you're always like, if you're not doing that, then it's very easy to just be stagnant and like not flow at all. It's easier almost to undo something than like get started. If that makes sense. Yes. And that was a
2: trap I was in for a while.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like, it's hard to figure out the right balance there because I mean, I, I definitely above of the mind that it would be worse to be somebody who never starts things than to be someone who follows through on every single thing they start. Right. Mm-hmm. Am I, did I put that right? Like, I'd rather fail by quitting things than fail by never starting things. Like, I think that's better in the long term. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it's like, especially with kids, like definitely can't YOLO the way I used to be able to. I I, I thought about this. I thought about this a lot in the last, like I feel like the last six months where I'm like, man, I just don't have the like balls to do certain things that I used to, where it was like, like, you, you know, uh, buying the farmhouse it was like yeah fuck it we're just gonna go buy a house and turn it into an airbnb and like it's gonna work out it's gonna be like opening the cafe right we're like yeah we're gonna find a plot we're gonna make a cafe we're gonna figure it out like it's gonna be fine right like i would never do that today but like that's probably also a good thing (laughs) like maybe that's growth (laughs) uh I'm trying to make like 20-year decisions. Yeah. I feel like it's a good time for I it. I think
0: that makes off. sense, though. It's like different stages of life, too, because yeah. it only affected yeah. you before. Totally.
2: Now you're a gumption cultivator. Yeah,
0: dude, <laughs> Nannies are expensive. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh,
0: all right. All right. Well, on that note, next book uh, is Straw Dogs, I think. Right? Straw yep. Dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm actually, it's a Sorry, good. I'm so excited! It's a good one. book, like to go along with this one in some ways. I'm like thirty yeah. percent in right it, now.
1: It fits with it fits with Zen motorcycle or it fits with like Zen really well. Yeah, and with the relationship with technology, it's like all all good themes. Yeah,
0: yeah. So and that'll continue. be a good uh, good continued discussion. And then there's another announcement we want to make, but not just yet. <laughs> We have a couple things to do before we make that announcement. Okay, we'll do it next week. But it's a fun announcement.
1: <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, it's good. Enough. I can't wait. Yeah. Think coin.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have our AI coin launching yeah. MYT.
1: Launching as a BRC20. Uh, all
0: right. Well, on that note, right. we'll see everyone next right. time.
1: Straw Dogs. See you later. Leave a review. Tell your friends. Love you guys.